Welcome to Yo Today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is writer Paisley Rechtal. She is the author of The Night My Mother Met Bruce Lee, a book of essays, Intimate, a hybrid photo text memoir, and six books of poetry, including Nightingale, which won the 2020 Washington State Book Award for Poetry. Rechtal's latest work of nonfiction is Appropriate, a Provocation. Rechtal has two books forthcoming, West, a translation, forthcoming in 2023, which is a hybrid book-length poem, and Real Toad's Imaginary Gardens, How to Read and Teach a Poem, coming in 2024. Rechtal's work has received a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Fulbright Fellowship, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. Her poems and essays have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, American Poetry Review, The Kenyan Review, Poetry, The New Republic, Tin House, and on National Public Radio, among others. Rechtal is a distinguished professor of English at the University of Utah, as well as Utah's Poet Laureate. On April 7th, 2022, Rechtal will give a reading as a guest of the University of Oregon's Creative Writing Program. Thanks, Paisley, for coming on the show. It's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you for inviting me. So first, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I was born and raised in Seattle. Um, I'm biracial. My, half my family is Chinese, Chinese-American uh, on my mother's side. And the other side is a mixture of white, mostly Norwegian <laughs> um, on my father's side. I went to mostly public schools um, and one private school and then went to the University of Washington. And uh, I kind of flummoxed my way around and ended up in as a, as a writer, actually, kind of mostly to my surprise. Um, I went to the University of Michigan for an MFA program after I was actually enrolled in a medieval studies program at the University of Toronto. And I was pretty sure I was gonna become a professor of medieval studies, but when I got there, I spent my entire time turning everything I read into poems. And I thought, well, I'll just get this out of my system. I'll get an MFA and then I'll go back. And then I never went back. So let's talk about your most recent volume of verse, Nightingale. Um, first, would you give us an overview of the project of the volume? It's quite interesting what you were trying to do there, what you did do there. Well, it actually was sort of an accident on a couple of levels. I was going through a period of uh, writer's block and I was finishing up a book called Imag uh, Imaginary Vessels at that time. And as a, as a sort of last writing exercise I gave myself, I thought, why don't I just rewrite a myth from Ovid's Metamorphoses? I chose Faustus and Phil Philemon. And um, I decided to contemporize it. I didn't want to have any gods or goddesses in the very conventional and traditional sense. I wanted people to really kind of have a sense of what Ovid was really writing about. And that story in particular was about a couple that love each other so much that they don't want to have one die before the other. Um, and what are the costs of that kind of marriage? And I was thinking about that. So I rewrote that story uh, in a poem and I enjoyed it so much I thought I'll just do this again because I'm, nothing is coming to me organically. So I started rewriting as many of the myths from the metamorphoses that I could. And then I had a conversation with a woman who was another poet and she said, that's such a rapey text. <laughs> and I thought, no, it's not. But then when I went back, I thought, oh, of course it is. And I had been avoiding this one myth, Philomela, for a while because it is one of the most spectacular and terrifying stories in the entirety of that, that epic poem. And it is all about a young woman who is raped by her brother-in-law. And 
uh, he cuts out her tongue so she can't tell her sister what's happened and she weaves this incredible tapestry. I rewrote that poem and contemporized it in a way that I felt was far more honest um, to a contemporary person's experience, which is to say, how is it then a lot of people you know, don't necessarily report back in art or in, in on a police blot or anything, what has happened to them? Because in Philomela, in Ovid's version, she weaves this tapestry of what's happened to her and her sister sees and the two of them go off in this murderous rampage um, and it just cascades into violence. Anyway, I wrote that poem and uh, it was published and I felt that it was incomplete. It really bothered me. And so I sat down and I started writing, what did I leave out of that poem? And suddenly the, the poem essay Nightingale tumbled out and it was all about my own experience as a sexual assault victim, things, something I'd never talked about, you know, for 20 years. Uh, and my own sort of reading of the way that Ovid had his vote tropes of violence and change have kind of like woven through so much of Western literature and how it almost always figures around the body of a woman who is, you know, <laughs> uh, goes through some really terrible things. And the, the, the symbol of the nightingale itself is of course the symbol of poetry, but it's the, the animal, the creature that Philomela herself is transformed into after all of these violent events. So once I realized that, I realized I actually had a book and it was a book about violence and change and art and what art purports to give us um, when we're trying to think about the worst things that have happened to us in our lives. Would you read Philomela to us? Happily. Philomela. Because her grandmother loved the arts, her father said, she'd willed the money to a distant cousin working as a sculptor. A decision made the month before she died from cancer, which the young woman cannot now believe was due only to a brain tumor. Having endured the last deliberate ways, her grandmother asked why she'd never married. The cousin who inherited the money showed her sculptures in a converted barn, the only space large enough to contain the seething shapes that seemed to flame up from their pedestals in precarious arcs. An audacity of engineering the young woman tried not to see as a reproach when, curious, she visited how the sculptures made her feel too earthbound solid. At the gallery, she stared a long while at what she thought was a tree blasted by lightning, but the more she looked, the more clearly shapes emerged. There were a man's hands gripping a slender figure by the waist, the thin body writhing, frozen in his arms. It was a girl she saw, with shredded bark for breasts and dark charred wood for legs, as if the limbs had been snatched from a, from a fire while burning. Her twig hands raked her captor's face. The young woman could read no emotion on it, however. The plank face had been scraped clean. All the fear and anger burned instead inside their twisting bodies. She could see the two there stuck at a point of perfect hatred for each other. She for his attack, he for her resistance, perhaps the beauty he could not stand in her as her last date in college had hissed. You think you're so fucking pretty, spitting it into her face so that she'd had to turn her cheek to wipe it, which was when he grabbed her arm, pinning her. Was this why her cousin had been chosen? To make 
which she'd had no words for? Persephone, the piece she stood amazed before, had been titled the last, perhaps unconscious, gift of her grandmother. For your wedding, she'd said during her last week, pointing to her own open palm in which nothing rested. Perhaps her grandmother had imagined a gold ring there, perhaps a string of thick pink pearls. The young woman drove home from the gallery, took a shower, and did not tell anyone that day what it was she'd seen. A month later, in the mail, a package came from her father, her grandmother's Singer sewing machine, its antique brass wheels scrubbed of gold, the het wooden handle glossy with vines of mother of pearl. It was lovely, and for a moment she considered sewing a quilt with it, onto which she might embroider shooting stars and reds and saffron, the figure of a child, perhaps, or of a man by a house's courtyard, his hat in his hands, his broad body naked, harmless. How much thread would that take to make, she wondered, and considered it a long while before packing up the machine again, sliding it back into its wood crate and high up onto a shelf of her bedroom closet, the place she kept some books, old clothes, and college papers, where she told herself it could wait. So obviously in your rewriting of the Ovid narrative, uh, Unlike Ovid's Philomela, who weaves the, the tapestry, your Philomela does not. Yeah. Um, and you, you've mentioned that you, the, the volume is interested in questions of violence, power, and art. And though the, the Philomela in the poem does not weave a tapestry, you have woven a tapestry. And in fact, in a way, Nightingale is a kind of tapestry poem in a way, since it's it's kind of stitched together, pieces stitched together. To tell us a little bit about where you're at on this question of the agency or power of art to, to manage and to respond to these kinds of acts of violence, sexual violence and suffering. I don't know where I am. <laughs> I, I don't know if anyone can comfortably come up with that kind of answer, I recently did a lecture for the Academy of American Poets um, about the question of the poetry of war. And it, it's uh, the new book of essays I'm working on very slowly really takes into one consideration, one question, which is why would we ever write a poem about the experience of war? What is it that poetry gives us? When we think about art and we think about literature and we think about visual art too, we tend to think about these things as um, objects of beauty, that beauty is a central concern. Terry Eagleton, who's a scholar <laughs> um, and literary critic would say that all poems have morals, not morals in like, you know, fables or religious, you know, narratives, but that they have a moral purpose to them. And that's something as a poet, I myself have really resisted. And yet when we think about art that takes on the subjects of intense suffering and cruelty, and in some ways, spectacular violence in the ways that we think of spectacle, there's an inherent moral imperative to writing those kinds of poems. And you, know, you don't as a writer want to turn that violence itself into a work of beauty. You don't want to make it sublime. You don't want to make it attractive. And yet at some point in order to engage and move a reader to feel the moral imperative 
of stopping violence, of working against war, of working against the things that created the poem, you have to make them feel. And feeling is often about identification and that kind of um, almost empathetic desire to, to see yourself as part of the, the sufferer. So, you know, you're always walking a super fine line as a writer. How do you engage empathy without it becoming um, a kind of violation in itself? And I don't know how the answer is. <laughs> I know when it's done badly and I know when it's done well, but I don't know if there are steps to achieve it that you can teach and you can reproduce. Uh, clearly one aspect of this problem is the, is the aspect of poetic form. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the striking things about the metamorphoses is its formal variety. It's all these different genres in this in this text that Ovid wrote. And your your volume, too, is is filled with all different poetic genres, all different poetic forms. There's a sonnet sequence in it. And, and Nightingale is a very unusually formed uh, work. Say a little bit about how you think about form, poetic form around these issues of power violence, cruelty in verse? That's a great question. I mean, I think all poems are in search of a form, right? All, all subjects have a kind of form and poetry is one that considers form at the micro and macro level. That's one of the things that I think differentiates it so much from prose, which is that there's all of these different types of pattern making, patterns of images, patterns of sound. And then of course, uh, if you've chosen a culturally received form like a sonnet, then you've got patterns of historical meaning um, as well. And so form is just absolutely crucial to any poem. But when we're thinking about poems of violence, and poems of maybe trauma, form becomes potentially even more important, which is what is the form that is there to enliven or to contain or constrain some of the images that threaten to get out of control. Um, I'm thinking of Paul Ceylon's um, Death Fugue. You know, one of the things that's interesting about that is that it has it's speaking to a kind of fugue-like music, but it also you know, subverts all of this syntactical clarity that we might assume that goes along with song um, and dance and things like that. And so that things blur together and it seems that the people, the Jews that are dying are also coming to life simultaneously. And so there's two different forms working there. There's syntactical form, and then there's also musical form. Um, and for me, I mean, I'm no salon, sadly. I, I, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about what a sonnet can contain versus what a more prose-like narrative can contain versus what something that approximates a kind of blank verse can contain. What does narrative do versus what does lyric do? And they all contain and allow for different forms of knowledge. And I think I was able to choose different kinds of subject matter based on what those different genres allowed me to do. So for some of the most painful poems, like a poem about my grandmother's death and by euthanasia, I found myself pairing back very much to lyric for something that was, you know, much more about suffering over time. I went for a very narrative form like in Philomela. So could I ask you to read uh, Driving to Santa Fe at this point? Yes, happily. 
this is one of the few poems that's kind of happy. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I was thinking about with this poem is how oftentimes in Ovid, people are changed into animals. It's the natural world that actually lends itself to most of the transformations. And so this is my response to that. Driving to Santa Fe. Quick swim up through the headlights, gold eye, a startle in black, green, swift glance raking mine. A full second we held each other, gone, gone. And how did I know what to call it? Links, the only possible reply, though I'd never seen one. The car filling with it, moonlight, pinion, a cat's acrid smell of terror. How quickly the gray body fled, swerving to avoid my light. And how often that sight returns to me, shames me to know how much more this fragment matters. More than the broad back of a man I loved. More than the image of my friend, cancer struck, curled beside her toilet. More than my regret for the child I did not have, which I thought once would pierce me utterly. Nothing beside that dense muscle, faint gold guard hairs stirring the dark. And if I keep these scraps of it, what did it keep of me? A flight, a thunder, a shield of light dropped before the eyes, pinned inside that magnificent skull only time would release, split back, fade, and reveal. Wind would open him. Sun would turn him commonplace, a knot of flies, a rib cage of shredded tendon, wasp nest fragile, the treasure of him like anything gone. Even now I thumb that face like a coin I cannot spend. If something in me ever lived, it lived in him, fishing the cold trout thick streams, waking to snow, dying when he died, which is a comfort. I must say this, otherwise I myself do not exist. It looked at me a moment, a flash of green, of gold and white, then the dark came down again between us. Once I was afraid of being changed. Now that is finished. The lynx has me in its eye. I am already diminished. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for sharing these poems with us from Nightingale and from and for talking to us about Nightingale. I'd like to switch gears and talk about your most recent nonfiction work, Appropriate a Provocation. Mm -hmm. So um, tell me uh, about the project of that book and why it's a provocation. Well, <laughs> it's a provocation in several directions, I should say. Um, one is when to talk about cultural appropriation right now at this moment is provoking on almost every level for almost any person, wherever you stand on this side of the issue. Um, but it's also a provocation for me because one of the things I want people to remember is that as readers, we have a lot more agency than perhaps we might imagine. I think there's a tremendous amount of anxiety right now about reading problematic texts, um, reading writers of the past whose values do not cohere perfectly with our own or even you know, resemble our own. What does it mean to read a text that offends us? And I read texts that offend me all the time. <laughs> um, what does it mean to be a writer in a climate where maybe we want out of very good 
ethical impulses to quote unquote stay in our own line, lanes when in fact globalism and cosmopolitanism and just basic life means we're always forced into each other's lanes and most of us are within multiple lanes already. So that's the provocation. Um, this was not a book I actually initially wanted to write at all. An editor approached me after seeing a Facebook post I'd written about a poem that had gone viral and everyone was saying that this was appropriative. And so I analyzed the poem and I said what I said about it. And then the editor reached out. And initially I thought that's a terrible idea. <laughs> like, I don't really wanna write a book about cultural appropriation right now. But the reality is as a literature professor, as a creative writing professor, and as a writer, I've been thinking about these questions for quite some time. So why not just sit down and and think them through, um, actually really think them through? Well, you do an amazing job of thinking them through. It's it's a wonderful book and it's a book that's tremendously provocative and, and productive. The book is in the form of, it's an epistolary nonfiction. It's in this sense, it's like ta Coates' Between the World and Me recently, or especially uh, Rilke's uh, Letters to a Young Poet from 1929. Why did you choose to write the book as a series of letters to a poet, an imagined student poet? For three reasons. The first was it would get me away from being too academic. Um, when I had to think of myself as a person and to somebody else who was a person, it naturally humanized my voice. Um, the second is it allowed me to backtrack and change my mind. Um, you know, it's, it allowed me to, the space to also interrogate why I believe what I believe in a more personal kind of way, which I think doesn't tend to happen as much in more scholarly kinds of contexts. Um, and I think the third one was by accident, but once I imagined and had to imagine who I was speaking to, it actually allowed me um, the space, not just to change my mind, but to have to clarify what it is that I believed. Um, a lot of people have asked, why is X white? Um, and the, the short-ish answer to that is that if I was writing to somebody else who was mixed race, I would have speak, been speaking in a kind of shorthand. And I think the experience of race for a lot of people is one that we understand intuitively, but we don't always have a theoretical language for. But by understanding X is white and thinking about that as a primary part of that person's identity, it made me have to articulate concepts that I would have taken for granted as understood by a different kind of reader. You mentioned um, the kind of dynamism of the persona uh, that you create in the volume. And one of the things I think that's really striking about it is this emphasis you place on change. And you know, your, your, your book, um, Nightingale, is in fact a work of appropriation. And it's also a, a work that's all about metamorphosis, about transformation. Say a little bit about the centrality of this dynamism, this kind of historical dynamism or contextual dynamism that you emphasize again and again and again in this book. I can't believe I didn't realize that. <laughs> you know, but it's true. I was working on Nightingale around the same time I'm working on appropriation, and they are both about change. Um, and I think one of the things going back to Ovid for a moment, one of the things I learned from the metamorphoses is that their change itself is not static, which is to say we, we use change as a term to include a whole variety of different types of metamorphic processes. Um, 
you know, some people in, in Ovid are changed utterly. Some people are not changed, they are revealed to be who they really were. Some people are only changed in the surface, but inside they remain the exact same, but their outward appearance is different. And I think that was one of the things that really motivated me in those poems. And with appropriate, and I think about literature, you know, literary texts are in constant conversation with each other. And they are changing the very nature of the original question that was asked in the, the texts that were um, the inspirational texts, the foundational texts, allusions, you know, that link texts to each other also start to change their connotation um, as they take on more meanings. Uh, you know, this the study of literature itself is in some ways the participation of, you know, participating in change and the study of change, the ways in which some of the most familiar tales that we hear over and over again are just altered and reimagined in these fabulous new ways by different writers and different cultures. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things that's so important when we engage in a conversation about what literary appropriation is. Um, we don't have an automatic um, answer to what <laughs> that, that appropriation is always going to be a negative process. It involves so many different kinds and types of work. And we have to be patient with ourselves as readers, and we have to be patient as a culture to that. Um, we can't assume that the values that we hold now are gonna be values that we hold in perpetuity. They just aren't, and they shouldn't be, frankly. Um, this is not utopia, because if it is, I want off. <laughs> you know, this, this looks terrible <laughs> right now. So, you know, obviously, and it's also, I think, a mistake to imagine that literature is itself morally progressive. Um, that, that's not what happens. In fact, if anything, it's, it's circular. Um, the same ideas keep coming back in different forms in a kind of wheel, modified, elaborated on, or debunked. So um, I, I, have, I tremendously want to recommend this book to anybody who's interested in these questions, any teacher, any writer. It's an amazing book, incredibly helpful honest, thought-provoking, extremely illuminating. Thank you for it. But I need to, I want to shift gears because you have so many things that you've done that I'd like to talk to you about. Tell us about this forthcoming book, West, a translation, and its accompanying uh, multimedia website. What is that and, and how did you come to it? Yeah, this was another, most of the most the most exciting projects I've done, um, I, I feel, have been given to me. They were not something that I thought about necessarily. Um, this is a result of being Utah's Poet Laureate, and uh, the 150th anniversary of the Transcontinental was coming up, so they asked me to write a poem. And um, rather amusingly, my name and my appearance would not necessarily automatically signal that I'm Asian American. Uh, so I don't think they you know, knew what they were going to get. But as soon as I got this commission, I said, oh, yeah, I will absolutely write you a poem about the Transcontinental Railroad. But what I wanted to do was do a poem through a Chinese perspective to think about those thousands upon thousands of Chinese workers that work for the Central Pacific Railroad, none of whom left any kind of um, literary trace of themselves. There are material traces, but we don't have diary records, we don't have letters, um, and the Central Pacific line kept very, very poor workers' records. So we don't even have, you know, real names of workers. We have sometimes their nicknames. So we don't really know anything about these men. So um, what I did was I took a poem 
that was a Cantonese poem carved into the walls of Angel Island Immigration Station during the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was passed into law about 13 years after the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. I took this poem and uh, on the multimedia website and in the book, both open with this poem and each character or pair of characters opens up into a poem about the cultural impact of the, the transcontinental, largely through the lens of the workers perspective. I didn't, I deliberately did not write any poems from the perspective of any of the owners because we have so much material and literary evidence of their, what they thought, what they did. So it's all about sort of the secret history and the secret cultural history of how is it that the transcontinental changed American life and it changed it utterly. And there's not a single part of American culture that was not affected by the railroad or the idea of the railroad. And so what I love, I mean, not to praise myself here, but I was really, really excited to work on this project. I'm really excited how it turned out with the website. You can go on and you can click and choose um, which characters you want to open up, they open up into a video or a documentary poem. And as the reader goes through, you can assemble your own kind of meaning. You can sort of assemble your own sort of translation. But to me, it also plays with this idea of what is history itself, but a translation. We don't really know everything. So we're always assembling the bits and pieces to tell a story that then gets revised and changed and altered in these ways by new historians and new writers. So um, the website and the book uh, the website you can play with now and um, the book is coming out next year and the thing that makes the book different from the website is that the book actually comes with another um, multimedia sort of <laughs> essay <laughs> it's a long story but you know there's there's another translation that appears in the book fascinating fascinating I, uh, the re the website is incredible and uh, we really look forward to the publication of the book paisley we're coming to the end of our time this is going to be my last question i'd love to talk more but you you have a busy life i have a busy life um <laughs> the question is do you have a, a writer or two or a book or two that you might recommend for our uh, viewers and listeners um you know <laughs> i should be thinking more about this i i have well okay to go back to Ovid for one minute, the first full length verse translation by a woman of Ovid is coming out. It's by Stephanie McCarter. And it it does make a difference, I think, the translator, some of the things. So um, Ovid is somebody I love, but you know her new version, I think is fantastic. I just read, uh, read a book called Curb by Divya Victor that I really love as a book of poetry, um, really thinks about race and environment and place. Uh, that's something that I'm always interested in too. So those are a couple of things. And then anyone who is interested in questions of migration and war, uh, Jenny Erpenbeck has been writing about this for quite some time and she's a German writer on her last novel, the title of which completely escaped me because I'm just, my brain is so shot these days, but just take a look at her work. Um, and she's writing about the, the Syrian migrant uh, crisis that happens in Germany. Well, thank you, Paisley, for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been really a, a, a real pleasure. We can't wait to, to have you here at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much. Thank you. I've been speaking with writer Paisley Rechtal. Her latest collection of poetry is Nightingale. She'll give a virtual reading as a guest of UO's creative writing program on April 7th, 2021. Thanks so much for watching.